If you have a Bible, you can turn in Proverbs to chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, we come to verses 21 through 25. Find that on page 539 of the Pew Bible. Proverbs 16, 21 through 25. This is God's word. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to Thus far, the reading of God's word. Turn me in prayer as we ask God's blessing in the reading and the preaching of His word. We rejoice, O God, that the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ contain that most gracious and persuasive speech where grace was poured out upon his lips above all his companions. And yet left to ourselves, Lord, we would not hear him, though he spoke wisdom and truth, goodness and beauty, such as the darkness of our heart, O Lord, that left to ourselves we prefer folly, deception, that which is ill, and that which is ugly. And so now we ask, O Lord, that you would incline our hearts to your word and speak those persuasive words to us by the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would posture us aright in meekness and humility to receive the implanted word which saves our souls, that you would attend my words, Lord, that you would multiply, Father, the efficacy of truth as only you can, speaking words to the heart and bringing forth that new creation fruit, which the Lord is pleased to bring forth unto your glory and unto our great good. So do these things even now. O oh Lord, for we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now we take as our verse of departure for Westminster Shorter Catechism 87, Acts chapter 11, verse 18. As we continue on in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we come to question 87, which we'll take up in a moment. But first, Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, 
saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thus ends God's word. And then question 87 in Westminster Shorter asks, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Well, if you read through the book of Acts and the early sermons and see much of the preaching that takes place, uh, you'll find the regular um, question, uh, what must we do to be saved? Um, and the answer in some form of another usually includes this call to repent. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Or repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so it's with good reason that uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, which is the chapter devoted to the doctrine of repentance, um, states plainly the importance of repentance, that it is to be preached by gospel ministers at all times and everywhere. It's no small part of what God is doing in this world in turning men from sin and bringing them unto himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear it right there in the question as it states plainly as it, in its answer that it is a sinner a sinner whom the word of the Lord addresses. And thus it is a response from a sinner that is called for. And that is what repentance deals with. It deals with the reality of sin. The reality of sin is characterizing our former manner of life, and the reality of sin is characterizing us as we live as those who are still harassed by the reality of the flesh by the reality of sin, by those who have need of dealing with this ongoing reality as we did this very evening, confessing sin and looking unto the mercy that is opened unto us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll spend some time talking about this gift of repentance. What is repentance? That's what the question takes up. What is repentance? Well, it starts by saying that repentance is a gift. I trust you know this. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't had a rather dramatic conversion, but for those who perhaps came to faith later in life, the reality that all of a sudden you saw your former manner of life in a dramatically different light in and of itself indicates that something had been given to me at a certain point. Some new understanding, some... New truth, some new light had been given unto me. And that's how it starts. Question 87 states that repentance unto life is a saving grace. I mean, grace means favor, grace means gift. 
And it is one that saves. It is one that God is pleased to utilize in the orchestration of bringing a sinner from sin and condemnation and tyranny under the devil into righteousness, justification, into the dominion of the beloved Son. So it states, first and foremost, repentance is a gift. And we heard that plainly. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. He's given it to them. They didn't have it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't come to it by their natural powers due to sin's corrupting influence. And so God gave it to them. You remember the context here is Peter reporting to the church in Jerusalem that God was extending the gospel now to the Gentiles, that he had poured the Holy Spirit upon them, and the church could do nothing except marvel. The church, predominantly Jewish at this point, saying, well, this is what the Lord is doing. Just as he gave this gift to us, he has now given it to them. And it's significant that that's how it started in Acts 5 with the realization that God had given the Jews this gift, Acts 5, 30 and 31. Peter is speaking, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. That this gift has come not just from God, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. That they were to look upon the one whom they pierce and mourn. Grieve the reality of sin. Grieve the dreadful darkness of man's heart, which would crucify the Lord of glory. But in God's providence, in God's purposes, this was done to break their hearts, to cut them to the quick, to give repentance. Scripture is plain. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We hear Paul instructing Timothy very similar to what we just listened to in Proverbs about that graciousness of speech, that persuasiveness of sweet speech, that loveliness of character, which the Lord is often pleased to use as a secondary means to give the gift of repentance, which once more Paul insists upon. So scripture is plain, repentance is a gift. It's not something that we can do left to our own devices. We ought to do it. It ought to be plain to us, the reality of sin. It ought to be plain to us, the reality of God and the worship to which he calls us, the thankfulness to which we are called. But it's not. And left to our own devices, left to our own abilities, we will not repent. We will see neither sin rightly nor God's grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, the reason that man does not repent is not because sin is not plain, but rather it's because man is in love with his sin. He's like Steve Oblonsky in Anna Karenina. He just can't fathom how his adulterous affairs, which are so natural and so delightful 
for a man of his energies. He can't fathom how they're wrong. He just doesn't see it. And this is in the face of his wife's misery and the fact that his estate is failing. It's not that it's not plain. It's that he's in love with what he's doing. Truly, we are blind left to ourselves. But by God's grace, he makes us see. Have you tasted of this grace of repentance? Behaviors, attitudes, actions that you formerly cherished are now seen in the light of God's word, in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we see the truth of sin unveiled, and the truth of our God unveiled as the one who sends his son for sinners. Repentance is a gift. So from this, we can learn what? Well, let us earnestly ask the Lord for this gift. It's something that we're not in need of just once, beloved, in our conversion, but throughout our life, as Calvin teaches. As long as man is dealing with sin, he will have need for the grace of truly understanding sin and truly understanding God's provision for sin. There is a sense in which we turn definitively from sin unto God in Christ in our conversion, but then there's also another sense in which we're continually growing in our understanding of God's holiness, in our understanding of his excellencies, the excellencies of the law of love, the excellencies of the Lord who leads us in paths of righteousness, and thus the heinousness of departures from such an excellent pass, path. And so we are in need of this grace of a true understanding of sin and a true apprehension of mercy. as We're called to confess particularly our sins regularly as Christians. Second, we can learn from this, if the Lord is convicting you of sin, don't harden your heart to it. It's a mighty gift that he is pressing upon you. David instructs in this light in Psalm 32. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Plainly, what's implied there is that there may be a time when he may not be found. What I understand him saying there is similar to what the psalm says elsewhere when he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The opportunity to repent in the form of those first flickers of the pangs of conscience, that is not something to be easily dismissed or worked against. Beloved, how often are we guilty of this? We know we've wronged someone, and we consciously decide to harden ourselves to that sense of wrong. Husbands, wives, you do this all the time. We do this all the time. It couldn't be a more dangerous path. For the Lord is screaming warnings against plunging into ruin, and to disregard them is pure folly. Repentance is not something to be put off. It can't be assumed that another chance will come later. Today, right now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you have consumed poison, it's no time to deceive or delude yourself. It's time to deal in truth. Don't rest until the poison is dealt. And last, we can learn from this that True repentance is a saving grace unto life. And I say that to help us when it's time to repent. Because we get all sorts of confused about this, don't we? When it comes time for us to repent. 
We start pointing our fingers at other people. We start grumbling and complaining that this one or that one should have to repent as well. Forgetting that God is dealing with us in grace, leading us in repentance unto life. You've swallowed the poison. He places the antidote in front of you and you say, well, I'm only taking it if they take it first. You're going to die, dude. (laughs) Take the antidote and live and let them deal with the Lord as he sees fit. We do this all the time, don't we? We forget that the grace of repentance leads us to life as we get caught in the fog of blame shifting and blame placing. Knowing that the Lord has called us to deal with him as an individual soul, as a responsible agent. Heaven help us against ourselves. Second, we look at the reasons for repentance. So we ask, what is repentance? Repentance is a gift. And then second, looking at the reasons for repentance, we look at repentance as a change. Repentance is a change. That's what question 87 goes on to say. Repentance is turning unto God. It's brought about by two specific factors. The first is a true sense of sin, and the second is an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. Both of these things are necessary for Christian repentance. You must have both of these things in some degree or in a true degree. So A. Hodge calls these the grounds of repentance, and I think what he means by that is that they're the local and the immediate causes of that turn. This is what happens. You see sin truly, and you perceive God's mercy truly. And that results in a fleeing unto him. So first, God grants us a true sense of sin. We can see here how repentance and regeneration are closely related. Outside of a state of grace, man's heart is said to be of stone. He has a stone heart, utterly insensitive to the realities of truth and sin and light and that which is good. But in regeneration, what we were utterly insensitive to previously, now we begin to feel aright. Left to our sinful heart, we lack on the whole a true sense of sin. Perhaps we might understand that this or that is wrong in some sense, this or that isn't good, but on the whole we understand nothing of sin's danger and filth. We understand nothing of God's righteous judgment against sin. In sin we are like men who keep trolls as paramours, clinging to them fiercely, convinced that they are goddesses. In regeneration God turns on the lights. And that's awful. At least in part. God replaces that heart of stone with a heart that feels aright. He floods the room with light, and we see the terrible reality of our companions. Or in the case of temporary blindness to sin, something similar happens. That which we had convinced ourselves of, contented ourselves to live with, all of a sudden we see, oh, this is heinous. This is dreadful. 
So it's not just the one-time reality that takes place in regeneration. It's also the removal of that temporary blindness that sin introduces. This is what happened to David when he sinned with Bathsheba. We can consider David's darkness with Bathsheba. He takes this woman who's not his wife. He kills her husband to cover up his sin. He hardens himself to the truth. And not only that, when Nathan comes to him with a report of another man's cruelty, David is incensed at the sin of another. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he sentenced him to death, even though the man in question had only robbed and taken a lamb. I'm going to take a detour at this point, because I think this is one of the greatest dangers concerning a true sense of sin. Mark David's indignation at the sin of another, though he was in the throes of iniquity. A true sense of sin is a true sense of the individual's sin, not the sins of others. John Murray writes, it's very easy for us to speak of sin, to be very denunciatory respecting sin, and denunciatory respecting the particular sins of other people, yet not to be penitent regarding our own particular sins test of repentance is the genuineness and the resoluteness of our repentance in respect of our own sins. David rails against the sins of this imaginary man content to overlook the log in his own eyes. It's one of sin's most terrible effects. It blinds us to its presence in our own hearts and lives while intensifying our sensitivity to its presence in the lives of others. Oh, that's grotesque. That's grotesque. Do you feel it? Do you feel the mockery the devil makes of us in such things? Do you feel the depth of sin's deceiving power? Do you feel your vulnerability to it? I pray you do. We can also rejoice that the Lord snatches him from this dreadful spot. We can contrast David's initial posture towards his sin and the sins of others with the posture of his heart when God grants him the grace of repentance. And that's what we get in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy upon me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You can hear the true sense of sin that the question highlights in this beautiful song. David clearly identifies sin is pollution. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Sin is guilt, blot out my transgression. Sin is an offense against God, against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is a personal act, have mercy upon me, my iniquity, my sin, my transgressions. This is a dialogue between a man and his God. 
Everything else falls aside. This is one of the clearer marks of a true sense of one's sin. One's not constantly looking around for the sins of others to somehow alleviate his own wrongdoing. One is fixed on his God whom he's offended and who is the author of forgiveness. Because that's also what dawns on David, is it not? It's not just the heinousness of his sin. It's not just the true sense of his sin which comes into plain sight. It's an apprehension of God's mercy. You can already feel why this is indispensable for true repentance. Without an apprehension of mercy, the sinner is not going to run to God. He's going to run from God. Is he not? If it's God who convicts of sin, if it's God who sends those pangs in the depths of the soul, unless there is a balm sent from the same source, then either madness or debauchery would result. You would either be driven mad or you would give yourself flagrantly to that life as a way of somehow escaping that dreadful feeling in the heart. And so you can hear what David clings to, mercy, steadfast love, abundant mercy. It's not just that God opened his eyes to see his sin. He did that to bring David to a greater sight and sense of the excellencies of his God, who truly pardons iniquity. And what David understood faintly, we understand plainly, for God has provided the cleansing fountain for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood truly cleanses, the cleansing for which David longed is to be found not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, put forth unto the glory of the Father. The guilt which assuaged David, a debt he could not pay, was paid for on the cross of Calvary as the Lord Jesus Christ offered that which was most precious in all of creation, his life, spotless, without blemish, pure. And so what David sees here is hinted at and the covenant is set forth in types and shadows. We have seen step out into the light in the Lord Jesus Christ. As one pastor put it, true repentance not only sorrows for sin, but sees a Savior. And that's exactly what Peter explains in Acts 5, that it's through Jesus Christ that God grants repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Or to use the image in Matthew's gospel, he gives us both a true sense of our sickness and he brings the physician. This is what entails repentance. So we can learn from this. First, that the gift of the true sense of sin from God will always be accompanied by a true apprehension of mercy. This to me is most important because the devil loves to lead us into despair. And very often he takes our sins and our failures and he presses them in front of our nose. But instead of leading us into the arms of Christ, he leads us into paths and depths from which there is no rescue. 
If it's a spiral of despair which opens up through a knowledge of your sin. If it's an endless self-castigation. If it's an endless self-loathing which opens up. You can be sure that the devil's breath is at hand. For the Lord's voice even in convicting of sin, is gentle and is pressed upon our hearts to lead us unto an apprehension of mercy. Mark the devil's designs in these things. Mark how willing a companion he gets in our flesh. For oftentimes our flesh wants to deal with sin on its own and not find the remedy for sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. We think if we can simply despise ourselves enough create enough suffering, create enough misery, create enough good deeds, whatever the case may be, that we can deal with sin without dealing with the Savior. We see here plainly that it is both a true sense of sin and a true apprehension of mercy, which is the gift of grace, beloved, which is the work of God. Second and related, we reasonably expect our understanding of both our sin and the depths of God's mercy to grow throughout the Christian life. The more we come to know God's excellencies, the more heinous sin is in our sight. The more we come to know sin's heinousness, the more remarkable God's grace and mercy become in our sight. The Lord is orchestrating these things to grow us in grace and knowledge, beloved. So it ought not to surprise us as both of these things grow throughout the Christian life. And last, we can consider the shape of repentance. The shape of repentance. We say repentance unto life is a gift that it's brought about by a true sense of sin and apprehension of God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the shape of it is turning unto God from sin with grief and hatred of that sin with the full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And here are the three components in that. First, there's hatred and grief of sin. Joel 2 calls for the rending of hearts and not garments. It's an image there of mourning. It's an image there of being stricken in the heart with a sense of what the truth of sin is. Calvin says we not only abhor punishment, but we hate and abominate sin itself because we know that it displeases God. This is one of the differences between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief can come to some sense of the dreadfulness of wrong actions, but usually it's because punishment is at hand. Usually it's because they understand that there are going to be negative consequences for their actions. But Calvin highlights here that it's not just punishment that causes us to hate and to grieve our sin. It's not just because we've been found out and are now going to have to bear some difficulty as a result of it. It's also because we see that our sin is displeasing unto God. There's a grief that attends it. Consider the human person that you, the human person? What did they, consider the person in your life whom you love most and how dreadful it is to do that which displeases them. 
This is the perennial parental rebuke that's almost worse than the harsh words. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. There's a sense in which the excellencies of the person factor into the grief at bringing displeasure to that person. Because there's a love, a respect, an honor, which colors the breaking of the heart when you know that you've done that which hurts them, is against them. And so it is with the displeasure of sin in God's sight. We grieve it because it displeases him. We hate it because it is against him. The punishment that is pronounced upon sin, we can declare as just and leave that into his hands when he presses these things upon our heart. We can see how this true sense of sin and the renewed heart results in this. For now we see rightly, as it were. You can kind of get a sense of this experience from the opposite experience. Consider the encounter with something beautiful. It seems to me that you've not really seen the Grand Canyon if something in you is not stirred. You haven't seen it rightly unless there's something in you that's moved. You can't prescribe just how many tears of joy you have to shed. You can't prescribe how many degrees of lightness you feel in the light of the sublime, but a true sight of beauty will produce something of the appropriate response. And so it is for the ugliness and the heinousness of sin. Grief, hatred, revulsion are the appropriate response when the true sense dawns, which also explains the turning away from it unto God. You can consider that rather vivid illustration of taking those trolls as companions and then all of a sudden the lights go on. You are rightly repulsed. You see now that you had gotten the world wrong, as it were. What you thought was good and beautiful turned out to be ill and ugly. And it's most natural when the world gets put back right that you shrink back from the one and gravitate to that which truly is good and true and beautiful, namely the husband, the king, the choicest among ten thousands in the Lord Jesus Christ. This turn that takes place in sin. And it's also worth noting that it is a sight of the excellencies of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, which also fuels this grief and hatred for sin. It's not just a true sense of sin as we look upon the works of our hands and any particular act that you've done, this bout of cruelty, this bout of greed, this bout of lust. But the fullest picture of the reality of sin is to be seen where? The cross of Christ, beloved. The wrath of God poured out upon the Lamb. But you can see how grief and hatred results from that, not just through the horror of the reality of sin, but also as it's coupled with the excellencies of God. As the one who bears sin's dreadful curse is none other than the beloved Son, than God himself. It's beholding the cross. It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly displayed to you as crucified, Paul writes to the Galatians. It's the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ, which cuts us to the quick, which presses upon our heart both that true sense of sin and that fountain of mercy which God has opened, which brings about the turning 
from sin unto God. And it's not just a turning, it's also a new resolve. There's nothing against resolutions. There's nothing against new purposes. Perhaps we get a little bit uncomfortable when it comes to this, mostly because we break them so quickly. And that's true. But it doesn't mean that there's not a good place for them. It closes here, a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It strikes me that this is much of what's going on in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 57 through 64. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and I do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You can hear this beautiful mixture of a sense of what will take place left to himself. He says, when I consider my own footsteps, I must turn them back to your way. He knows that left to himself, he's going to go astray. That grief over sin. But it's coupled here with a confidence that the Lord delights to lead in the path of righteousness. And out of a conviction that that is indeed the case, there is a resolve, a resolve to pursue, a resolve to entrust, a resolve to obey, not for the earning of God's favor, beloved, but out of a perception of the mercies which have been opened unto a child of God in the rescue which God has worked from the bondage of iniquity and into the liberty of the law of love in which he delights now to lead us for his name's sake. May the Lord grant us that true sense of sin, that true understanding of mercy, and an earnest desire to turn unto him and follow after Christ all of our days. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for the grace of repentance. We give you thanks for your patience and your steadfast love. We give you thanks that you retrieve the wandering. We give you thanks, O Lord, that you are pleased to shine a light in the dark areas of our heart to bring us to this sight and sound. We ask, O Lord, that you would continue to grant us this gift. We get this wrong in so many ways, O Lord. We ask that you would guide us and guard us and keep us. That you would, Father, make us quick to acknowledge sin, quick to flee to the arms of Christ, quick to pursue that which is righteous and holy and makes for peace. We know, O Lord, that we cannot do these things on our own. We rejoice, O Lord, that you are pleased to give these gifts. We ask that you would give them, for we ask in the name of Christ.